Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam Levinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where we speak to all kinds of great entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Quick little announcement, we have set up a link where listeners can now support the continued growth of the show. The whole thing takes about 60 seconds. It's glow.fm slash e 2 that's glow.fm slash e2. We're asking for $5 a month, but you can contribute as much or as little as you like. So if you enjoy the content we are producing here and e2 is a part of your pod routine, check it out. Your support means a lot. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Unbound Merino. Unbound offers the highest quality antibacterial and odor resistant merino wool clothing that helps you pack light when you travel, save money, and enjoy the comfort of incredible merino wool t shirts, hoodies, and more. Visit unboundmerino.com. That's unboundmerino.com. Pack less, experience more. Today is my conversation with Dan DeBeau. Most recently, Dan was CEO and co-founder at Helpful.com, a startup backed by Bessemer Ventures that was acquired by Shopify in 2019, which is where Dan is now. Prior to Helpful, Dan co-founded Ripple, which was acquired by Salesforce. He is also a founding partner of the Creative Destruction Lab at Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, and an early investor in over 50 technology companies, including Well Simple, Ritual, Skip the Dishes, and others. In this episode, we get into Dan's framework for startup ideation, how he met PayPal's Peter Thiel, who later became an investor in Ripple, Dan's philosophy around angel investing, the notion of creating 10 Shopify's here in Canada, and so much more. And with that, let's get to it. Here is Dan DeBoe. I was doing a bit of research, noticed that you're a musician and you play bass. I do. How long have you been doing that? Um, I think I've been playing bass for 15 or 20 years now, but I've been playing guitar since I was 12 or 13, I guess. I'm a partner in a music studio, and I figured out that um, great musicians, studio musicians, working, gigging musicians never get to play for fun. And so just through networks of friends, I've kind of got the vibe out and invitation out to lots of different uh, great players. And pretty much every kind of weekend, I sort of put together a jam of just great musicians and go in and play with them. So that works for me. That's how I get it out of my system, but also don't have the pain of like, you know, driving around and lugging and getting gigs and rehearsing for that. It's just much more about having fun and playing music. What is the Joe Dart signature bass that you recently ordered? <laughs> So Joe Dart is is right now the number one bassist in the world, and um, hmm. he's an amazing, amazing, interesting human being. Comes from a line of musicians. Actually, his grandfather, if you remember Psycho, you know the sound of the violin when uh, you know Janet Lee gets the ah, ah, that's his grandfather playing that. Uh. <laughs> so Joe Dart is this kind of virtuoso bass player in a band called Wolfpack, which I'm a little obsessed with. 
Yeah. Uh, last year, I was lucky enough. We, we were able to bring them down to our studio. and We did sort of a private event with Joe and another member of Wolfpack. And then it had a bunch of like students from Humber down, got to know them a little bit. And so uh, Joe created a custom base from Ernie Ball and, um, you know, put it up for sale. I think they only sold 50 of them. And, uh, and I was able to get my hands on one of them. And then I, I collect working basses and guitars, and, and that it's just a wonderful new toy. I could spend the whole hour talking about this band, Wolfpack, his band, because it's such a fascinating, incredible business story. I mean, they're musically amazing, but in terms of their use of creating content on the web, on the social web, that then in turn built loyalty, drove listeners, uh, and then created live experiences, it's truly amazing. Two notable things. One is people might have heard about the story of this band. They don't know who they are, but but they released an album called Sleepify. And mm-hmm. basically it was a 24 hour long uh, silent album. And they put it on shop on Spotify. Sorry, I should mix those up. Put it on Spotify and um, told their fans just like, hey, before you go to sleep at night, just put this on and keep playing it. And if we make enough money through the, the plays, we'll then use it to fund a tour where we can come to your town and play hopefully for free. And so they did. And, 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 but Spotify had like found that loophole and changed mm-hmm. the rules. Um, and then the second sort of recent kind of denouement of that is is they've gotten so big that they recently uh, booked out Madison Square Gardens like themselves. They, they didn't have like, you know, they have no manager. They booked out Madison Square Gardens and sold it out solely through their like social and online promotion. Isn't there a business book called like the business of the Grateful Dead or something? Yeah, but the author that by the CEO of HubSpot actually. Right. And, and it's funny. I've been talking to the guys. I'm like, you need to write a new version of that because um, you know, that's the, that's, that's the HubSpot inbound marketing. And he, he's linking how inbound marketing is kind of like the way that the dead did what they did. They gave away free content, but that brought people to the shows. And, and I'd say Wolfpack is kind of like super next level of what they've done because, uh, <laughs> they, it's not just like releasing the tracks. It's, it's more about, they create this amazing, um, narrative video content, audio content, the way they release, the way they engage. I mean, they're truly masters of using social to, um, to, to drive audience. Yeah. A sidebar question, by the way, related to the bass ranking. I don't know a ton about bass players, but where would Future Man fr- from Bella Fleck and the Flecktones rank and or Jacko Pastorius be on that list? Yeah. Well, Jacko definitely is not on that list because he's not a living bassist, unfortunately. So it's um, only it's only for those that are yeah, still alive. Living okay. bassist. Yeah. Yeah. This list, I have the list that Joe's on right now. Um, so that's that's kind of like number one. And then you asked about Future Man. I, I think he's I'm sure he's up there right now, but he's not like, you know, kind of hot and fresh and redefining everything. But Future Man's a great, a great bass player, too. I think actually, no, no. I think you've got it incorrectly, though. So Future Man is the drummer, the percussionist. The dr- the bass player from Bela Fleck is a guy named Vic Wooten. And Vic oh, is right. definitely in the top, right. top, top. Right. Top I there, did right. mix that up. You're right. Yeah, that's okay. Victor Wooten. How did this um, podcast turn into a vibe session with bass players? Uh, I, I don't know. know. I, I like music, so so we can we can go in all kinds okay. of directions, and I can okay. stick on music forever. No problem. I'm, I'm here to answer your questions. I just want to make sure people are like, wait a minute. I thought I was going to hear about other stuff. Uh, how am I hearing about like Daniel's weird obsession with bass players? <laughs> well, the podcast goes in weird directions sometimes. Yeah, sure. But there's lots of parallels that we can draw between musicianship and, and entrepreneurship. So I guess I'll start by jumping back to your days at Goldman. So circa 1999, late 99, early 2000s, if my timeline is correct, you connected with David Ossip, who gave you an opportunity to work with him on starting WorkBrain. Um, so for those that aren't 
necessarily up to date on uh, where you are now. Where did it all start with with WorkBrain, and what was it like to work with David? Sure. Yeah, the Goldman Sachs thing was just a summer job I had. But after I had done my MBA, I was sort of, I was sort of I had actually accepted a job at BCG, the consulting firm. Um, and I was just kind of hanging around school. And David, um, who knew me because his younger brother is my best friend, and <laughs> David doesn't like when I say this, but he was like my babysitter. I would like, you know, hang out. He was there. And he, you know, very graciously said, look, would you come help me write the business plan and work on that? Because I want to work on actually building the product and building the business, but I got to do this to go raise money. And so, sure, no problem. Can I get the smartest guy I know to work with me? Sure. So that was a guy named Matt Chapman, who's now a partner at TorQuest in Toronto. And the two of us kind of holed up in the computer lab at the school and worked on this plan. And that summer came and I was like, you know, I'd rather just work for this company. It's really neat. What I loved was the very fast feedback cycle, right? Like you work on something and you could, David was incredibly empowering and very supportive of like, yeah, go figure this out, go do that. And so that summer I started to just do things and, you know, see how I could help out. And, and then the other summer came and I said, you know what, like, can I stay here? And, and, and I, I, I did. <laughs> I called BCG and said, I'm not coming. And David and Alun, his brother, were, were very gracious. They bought me out of my contract and said, yep, we're going to you know, give you a, a great package here to come, come be on the original team. And that's, that's how I got to go work at WorkBrain. Uh, you asked how it was to work for David Ossip. Uh, it was great. I mean, it was challenging. I learned a ton. Uh, he has extremely high standards. He pushes you to you know, deliver He's super smart and he knows the details, so you better know what you're talking about. And it just kind of prepared me, I think, in many ways for the future. But at the same time, like he's a true entrepreneur, and so he he would, you know, really empower. Like if I'd be like, "Hey, let's try this," he'd be like, "Great, go figure that out," and and we would. So it was a really positive experience all around. Very grateful for getting that chance. So do you look back on that as sort of your biggest career turning point? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was the moment like I could have gone and ended up being a, you know, a lawyer or a banker or consultant, mm -hmm. I guess, is where I was going to go. And I don't know, maybe I would have found my way back. But that for sure was the catalyst of so much because it was just this incredible seven-year journey of learning. I took a year off in the middle. I did a master's uh, of law in the middle of it. But, but all the way through that, you know, David just never stopped throwing me at new things, new challenges. The company went from, I think, six people when I first started writing the business plan to almost 700 when I left. Uh, we went to almost 100 million in revenue. We took it public. I got to sort of do a tour of duty in operations and sales ops and marketing and corp dev, plus like a never ending series of sort of special projects and things inside the business. And um, that was catalytic for sure for me, both relationships, personal social capital, and, you know, actual capital. I was lucky, very lucky to be able to make enough money that sort of gave me the privilege, honestly, to go do the next thing. I mean, I was pretty privileged, could lucky enough to get that chance, but that was really the thing that took me to the next level. So it goes from zero to 700 employees. It's growing incredibly quickly. What was the hiring process like at the time? Oh, great question. Um, so, and I know a fair bit about it because I was doing a lot of hiring in those early days. You know, I mean, what was it like? I mean, we, we, we looked for what we thought were important signals. I mean, I think we all know now a lot more in particular about more diversity, different types of signals, but we were, we were pattern matching. We were looking for certain types of people who had worked at certain types of places just to kind of get a shortcut towards what we would find. We're pretty intense in the interviews we used to do, um, brain teasers and things like that. And, you know, it's interesting. I think brain teasers and things like that actually get a, a bad rap because I, people argue they're not predictive. And I think it's probably fair, but 
they're not predictive if you think the answer is important, but there's something about watching someone struggle with a problem and seeing whether they give up or not, frankly, that is actually, I think, some, somewhat indicative. So anyways, we used to do tons of that. We would make sure they were, they were very long interviews. We, we, I mean, the sense of like, you do like seven or eight in a day. We would move things through relatively quickly. Pretty much after you walked out, you had to kind of say yes or no to the next person. And if it was no, then, you know, we just kind of moved to the end of the day, I'm trying to think of some of the other elements of what recruiting was like. It was intense. And I think the other point was everyone was a recruiter. Um, <laughs> David Premer, who people in Toronto ecosystem might know, is like a, just a sort of absolute wizard and guru of sales and sales ops. He has an independent business. He'd be great on your podcast at some point because he's just been through so many startups. Um, David Premer came into our office because David Stein, my uh, the other co-founder of Workbrain, it was David Austin and David Stein were the two co-founders originally. Um, David met him at a shiva. <laughs> you know, he was like at a shiva and he met this like intelligent young guy who was doing his degree in I think chemical engineering or like environmental science at York. And he's like, mm-hmm. hey, you're smart. Why don't you come, come to our startup and come work on, on uh, being a sales engineer? And, you know, he walked in and we're like, yeah, we're going to recruit you. You know, that was kind of how we, that was kind of how we would meet people when trying to recruit them everywhere. Everyone was involved in recruiting. Do you see parallels between the hiring process back in the day at WorkBrain and current day at Shopify? Shopify is a lot better, <laughs> um, you know, in so many ways, right? It's, it's um, I think uh, it wasn't a knock on what we were doing, but I think the science and art and understanding of what's predictive and what's important has, has gotten a lot better. Um, I think Shopify, there were parallels. I mean, the one parallel definitely is that Shopify has this thing called life story, which is like, just come in and talk about your life from when you were in high school. And there's a series of questions that elicit and we understand, you can understand who a person is and what they really are. And it's a very casual, really important conversation. So I didn't mention it, but we used to do that a lot too. Just tell us about your story. Tell us your story. Um, so that's a parallel we definitely did, but in terms of professionalism, in terms of like, you know, how people are brought through, the materials that are created, the thoughtfulness within which people are, you know, reviewed and evaluated, the people are, are the care that's taken. You know, I'm not going to lie, WorkBrain was a startup, right? We were growing quickly as fast as we could. And so, you know, it wasn't always as much care as we probably wanted to. And sometimes also, I think we fell bait to like false signals, you know, and we would have painful, painful errors, you know, and, and one of the things I think Shopify is really good about guardian gates is like the false signals of like, you worked at this brand or you had this thing, therefore you must be good. And, and, and mm. no one, Shopify does not fall for that. We, we kind of fell for that. How did you, you sort of said this in passing, but curious to know, how, how did you get away with taking a year off in the middle of this rapid growth to do a master's? David was super cool about it. It wasn't a negative thing in any way. It wasn't, um, he was incredibly gracious. In fact, I really remember it was after our very first customer conference, Velocity in, in Atlanta. And I had, you know, I was the head of marketing by that point. So we pulled it off and I was exhausted and I didn't want to tell David before we did it because I didn't want him to be, have any doubts and I didn't want to be stressed. And then, you know, I went and told him and I was, I was actually like sick to my stomach the night before because I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to, you know, quit. But, but I really wanted to do this, this thing, this program at school. And I went to him and in, to his credit, he instantly just said, like, of course, you should go do that. Of course. I got into Stanford and he's like, that's amazing. And what a great experience. Go, go for it. Go do it. And so, like, technically, I resigned. But, of course, I kept talking to the guys. And, and the best part about it was, like, in the middle of it, David came to visit me and he's like, look, I think we're going to go public. I need you to help out. And, and I said, don't you remember I quit? And he's like, don't you remember you have all those shares? Uh, good point. So <laughs> I started to help, and then that kind of brought me back into the fold, and I ended up coming back as the head of Corp Dev once once the company went public. In 2007, you found Ripple. What was the ideation process for Ripple? How did it come about, and what's the origin story there? 
my wife and David Stein's wife were, were annoyed and sick and tired of us hanging around the house. <laughs> and so I remember quite distinctly, I was in David's pool and we were hanging out in his backyard. And I said, uh, hey, David, do you want to go get a job now? And he's like, no. And I'm like, he's like, do you want to go get a job? And I thought, no. And he said, I think we, one of us said, or I said, and I said, I guess we have to start a company then. And so that was what we started to do. We kind of started working out of our houses. And at some point, Judy, his wife, and Jordana, my wife, said, like, get out of the house. And so we, okay, 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 okay fine. So we, we, we uh, rented some space, actually from a, a WorkBrain alum um, who had used it uh, for his startup, but he had moved on. And he's like, well, I got it. You can sublet it. And so it was a little spot, Spadina and, um, Spadina, Spadina and King, actually not very far from where I'm standing, maybe 100 meters from where I'm standing right now at, at, the, at the Shopify offices. And, um, and then we walked into a room by ourselves and we had no idea. We had no plan. We had no like product. And then that's where we started. Okay. Um, <laughs> in that case, uh, I'll ask you this. D do you have some sort of a framework for coming up with these startup ideas? What we did when we were in that room is, I mean, you can boil the ocean uh, and we did a little bit, but what we did is we did a couple things. First, we created a filter. We said, what are the sort of things that like we kind of want to work on? And like, you know, on that list was like, themes like software, uh, not hardware, right? Like when you're going to build a main mm -hmm. company, um, you know, I was interested in like software as a service. We had just gone from a not like a license based business at WorkBrain, And I was like, well, like this is the future. Let's do that. And we thought a lot about like bottom up distribution because I had been at Stanford. I've been thinking about open source and like, this is a new model for people coming into companies. And Maybe we could do something like that rather than the kind of, and both of us, you know, David was the head of sales at WorkBrain. He was my boss. He ran marketing. He, you know, we built this very heavy go to market organization. Um, and maybe, you know, we thought maybe something would be different around products. So we had created some themes. That was just something to keep us honest. And then what we did is we would like brainstorm on ideas. But then we took this technique that we bored from this guy named Roger Martin, who was the dean of business at U of T. And it's, it's literally the scientific method, essentially. What we would do is we would say, okay, here's this idea. Let's, say, we should go build like a jetpack company. That's a great idea. Let's go do that. And so what we tried to do, and I think this is the most important point, was rather than trying to set out and prove that we were right, we set out to try and prove that we were wrong. And if we couldn't prove that we were wrong, then we would keep working. But it, and and this, like, this logic is very different from what I think a lot of people do. They're like, they get passionate about an idea, and then they just keep looking for confirmatory evidence. Whereas in order to keep ourselves honest, we tried to look for disconfirming evidence. And we took it a step further. So we would say, like a really quick heuristic, because in a startup, all you're trying to do is optimize the resource you have, which usually is just the time, the runway you have until either you run out of your personal savings or you run out of the, uh, out of the investments or whatever. And so what we then did is we would say, okay, here's this idea, jetpacks. What are five things that have to be true for that jetpack business to exist? And it might be like, oh, people want to buy jetpacks. And, uh, you know, we would understand the safety and technical capabilities of it. And you could, theoretically, you could build the physical parts of that and you could recruit the you know the right people to build a jetpack. I don't know, you put those things together. And then what you do is you don't just stop there, you take them and put them in order of easiest to disprove first. Because this is like five things that have to be true. All of these things have to be true for this business to exist. And so you take the thing that you can pr disprove quickest, right? And like maybe on that list would be like we know how to build rockets. And that would go to the rule number 1 and then we'd be like wait, do any of us do either of us know anything about building rockets? Do we know anything about, you know, <laughs> thermodynamics, fluid, like any, nothing. We know nothing about this. So we just disproved that we should not build a rocket engine company, a rocket jetpack company. We don't need to go to items number four, one, or sorry, items two, three, four, and five, because we already disproved one. And we already said that all of these things have to be true. 
And so we just did that. We kind of like, I mean, not the most perfect discipline, but we would try to keep ourselves honest. We would like, hey, what has to be true for this to happen? And then we would go off and like, you know, build hacky things to run tests. And, and that's, that's exactly the framework we did. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> and Ripple ultimately gets sold to Salesforce, correct? Yep. Um, and then you were there for a few years. But along the way, you meet Peter Thiel, who I believe was an investor in Ripple? He was, yes. How did that come about? So I met Peter before Ripple. I met Peter at Stanford Law School. He was one of the funders of the program I was in, the Stanford program in law, science, and technology. And I just met him there and they connected. And then when we were raising a company, um, actually one of my good friends was working for him at Clarium at the time. And I said, hey, do you think this would be something they would be interested in? We you know, did a few calls and, and he said, okay, I'll, I'll invest. Not, nothing too complicated, but, um, but that was it. And I think I had met him a couple times at Stanford, had gone to, Peter had like, you know, I think this is the interesting thing. Like this was before, this was just after PayPal, but it was well before Facebook, well before any of that stuff. So he was successful, but he was, you know, he was like hunting for talent. And so he, you know, sponsored this program, came to give a talk. So I talked to him afterwards. I walked up. I mean, never hurts to just ask. I knew who he was and chatted with him. And then he said, oh, that was interesting. Why don't we have another lunch? And so he just, like he was on campus another day and we just sat for an hour and talked about ideas or things. And then he said, why don't you come to my office in the city? And you know, he was just, I think, looking for people to work at his hedge fund, but that was that. And then I, you know, that was it. I left. And, but he remembered. Um, and so when I reached out to my friend who worked for him, it was, that was how it happened. For those that, that don't know who Peter Thiel is, uh, maybe you can give a quick summary besides PayPal. So Peter was, yeah, well, Peter was the co-founder of PayPal, um, CEO. Um, and then he, with, uh, with Max Lubchin, I think. And then after that, he uh, and Elon Musk, he merged with Elon Musk's company X.com to create PayPal. Um, and then, you know, after that, I guess he started a, a fund, a founders fund, and also Clarium, and started investing. And he became a very successful investor. Most notably, he put, I think, a half a million dollars into Facebook. He was the first investor in Facebook. And then subsequently went on to become, you know, a really, really successful investor in SpaceX and, you know, just dozens and dozens of other business, kind of the leader of what they call the PayPal mafia. And, you know, I think even, you know, the other part is of late, he's become, you know, famous slash infamous uh, for his support of Donald Trump. He's also written a great book called Zero to One, which yeah. I loved and highly recommend. Yeah, he did send me an early copy of that and I sent him notes on it. And it was a great book. Yeah, definitely. So when did you start angel investing? I started angel investing, I think, right after I went to Stanford, my roommate there um, was this amazing guy who had actually met at Goldman Sachs. He was a summer associate there and we ended up reconnecting. And um, he wanted to start a company uh, almost. And, and anyways, it is, it exists today. It's called Mubi, M-U-B-I. And it's essentially like a boutique version of Netflix. It focuses just on like art house films. Um, and that's the very first business. And it's actually, you know, still growing, still continuing to be a profitable business. It's kind of amazing. And then when I really started to angel invest was after I guess after Ripple, right? I mean, I had made some money. And, and so I felt passionately that, um, well, actually, I had met a bunch of people in California. I had met Peter. I'd also met a guy named Ron uh, Conway. And I knew about this guy named Yossi Vardy in Israel who had funded a whole bunch of companies there. And they kind of had a different style than what I was seeing in Toronto at the time. The style that they were doing was to best invest almost exclusively on people very, very early on make lots of different bets. Um, and that was like the angel model. Now, I mean, frankly, lots and lots of people do that, but I didn't, I just didn't see it happening in Toronto as much. 
Um, and so I thought maybe I could do that. I could, I could help. And, um, I, and I really didn't come to it with like, oh, this is a great way to make money or like, oh, I want to do this to become a VC one day. It was just like, I've been really lucky in my life, super privileged. And, and I don't, you know, don't for a second think that like, this is all just like hard work and genius. It's not at all. It's like being in the right spot at the right time and a lot of good luck. And so I felt a real big obligation to kind of help others. I thought about, you know, we can join a, a hospital board and go do those. Those are all good things and go teach, whatever. But I was like, I actually know a little bit about startups. So maybe I can help that way. Like I can actually get involved and I can do stuff. So that's where it started. And then I think it really started. I'm, um, I mentioned that guy, Roger Martin, before, actually. He was still the dean. And at U of T, their University of Toronto Business School, Rotman, there was this professor named Jay Agarwal who wanted to start something called the Creative Destruction Lab. Mm-hmm. And his thesis was how do we unlock kind of the hard science based technology that's at the University of Toronto. It's one of the top 10 research universities in the world, and yet has a pretty crummy record of commercialization. And so, you know, we started to iterate like a startup. Um, I wrote a pretty big check, the biggest charitable check I've ever written to the university, because this was not about making money. This was a, and still is, a CDL does not take equity, unlike anybody else. It's just, it's a public service, basically. And so um, I started to like help create the infrastructure, that program, become a founding partner and work on it. And then through that, I just started to see startups like that was that was that was the point. And I started to say to startups, I would meet them and I'd say, OK, I'd, I'd like to invest in you. Um, that's that's basically how it happened. Did you also apply that same philosophy of investing exclusively in the founders and the people? Primarily. Yeah. I mean, it was like a combination of like, do you think this idea is one that could be like crazy enough to change the world that had to be there? And then second was, do you think these are the founders and people who could go do that? Um, that was the two things. Um, and, and, you know, instead of like, I think the traditional approach to risk mitigation was like, wait till later, like wait till they have a half a million in revenue or something like that. Or, and then also like negotiate a very heavily protective contract, be really involved in the company, you know, do a ton of due diligence on the company. You know, I, I kind of thought, okay, those are interesting techniques to avoid risk. What about if you just bet really early on, you had really simple terms, like you, I, I was willing to do convertible debt and safe notes pretty early in, in Toronto. And, and instead, everything was based upon like a portfolio of crazy people, <laughs> you know, so most of them will fail, but a, a couple of them will just actually pull it off. And if you have a couple of them in that portfolio, then, then, um, then you, you can make money. But like I said, I never was trained. I mean, it sounds really strange, but like, if you make money to your goal, you might optimize for the wrong thing. Hmm. Um, and um, it's actually interesting at Shopify, you know, very few people here, I don't know anybody has like revenue as their main target. The targets are about making customers successful, you know, finding more merchants, creating more merchants. How do we help people become better and stronger entrepreneurs? How do we help them build their businesses? If we do all that, then the money will just come. Don't worry about that part. If you optimize for the money, sometimes you start doing things that are not in the best way. And so for me, I kind of, first of all, I kind of read, I was like, that is like one of the genius things about this place. But, but, um, but for me, you know, my, my thing was, if I just focus on helping the entrepreneurs as best I can, then all the rest of it will take care of itself. Don't, don't, don't get too, too round up about like this valuation is too high. And, you know, fully admit that's kind of naive, but I kind of viewed like, and what I was trying to do candidly, and I sort of through the CDL process was to get, there were lots of like, frankly, rich people in Toronto who had the ability to almost essentially negligibly support these early stage companies. But the problem was their framework was, how do I make money? This is a money-making opportunity. And, and I tried to shift with my friends who I was able to get involved in CDL. It's like, this is kind of in the middle, okay? This isn't just a charitable check, but this is about pay it forward. 
this is not like, don't think about this as a way. Actually, I'll tell you who taught me this. This was a guy named Dave Goldberg, who was Sheryl Sandberg's husband. Uh, and he was the CEO of um, a bunch of music companies sold to Yahoo Music and then was CEO of SurveyMonkey and unfortunately tragically passed away. He passed away, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was a lovely human being and always made time. Like I got connected to him. He always made time for me, just nice. And when time we talked about angel investing, he just said, yeah, don't think about angel as making money. That's not the goal. It's uh, This is about helping people come up the ladder, giving entrepreneurs a chance because there's so much leverage in, in these companies succeeding. And I was like pretty inspired by what he thought. And I thought, okay, that's a great thing to do. And so I was trying to get other people to do it. And I was like, you can't get other people to write a check unless you're willing to write a check. And so that was kind of what I was trying to think about. Yeah. And as you look across your investments, I mean, many of these tech companies have been extraordinarily successful. I'm just going to read a few of the names. So Wealth Simple, Ritual, Skip the Dishes, ClearBank, Borwell, et cetera. There are others, I'm sure, that have been very successful. Take money out of the equation for a moment. So for, forget about ROI. Which of these investments do you think is the most important for you personally? So so I will tell you, there, there's there's a few. Um, I, I, I'm the only company I'm on the board of of a startup is a company called North, which used to be called Thalmic. They were the first company that I invested in at the CDL. They were the first company to ever get any money at the CDL. They were in the very first cohort. Um, they have raised, I think, over $150 million now. They have hundreds of employees. They have gone through ups and downs, but they are building something absolutely amazing, world-changing. Um, you know, People have seen their first product that's out. I'm lucky I get to see what their second and third and fourth is. And I think it's just a pretty amazing business. The chance the, that has a business of its potential to be, you know, multi-billion dollar platform company based in Canada with like AI, hardcore, advanced manufacturing, advanced IP, everything that the, I think the country wants and needs is is embodied in that business with such just incredible leaders uh, in Stephen and Matt. And so, you know, I, I feel great about that. But I also feel great about like a company like Deep Genomics, which is which is literally the embodification of what we were in embodiment, sorry, embodiment of what we were trying to do at CDL, where it's a company where where the co-head of the machine learning lab has built a business to help discover new drugs. And, you know, uh, that was awesome. Like, it's amazing and it's meaningful. And partially for me, it's meaningful because, you know, as I said, my mission was to like be helpful. And actually I was able to be in that deal, not because I reached out, but because he called me and said, I heard that you're a really helpful investor. And would you know, I made some room. Would you be part of this? And I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is like, the strategy that I didn't really have as a strategy coming to fruition. And, and then, you know, they just actually announced that they have come up with their first drug for, um, um, for a, a very specialized disease. So there's a whole problem with like very small diseases that affect relatively small numbers of people, you know, thousands, not, not hundreds of thousands. It's hard to get research done on them. So I think that one's pretty amazing. I'll tell you another, I was like, I really like helping friends and having friends succeed. So, you know, I, I had two friends, this guy named Jordan Jacobs, who was actually our lawyer and I've known him since high school. And this guy, Tommy Putinin, who was in my MBA class, and um, they were both kind of thinking about what they should do. And Jordan had this idea for a business. And I'm like, you should really meet Tommy. Tommy would be the perfect partner for you to work on. And I introduced them. And just about six years later, they sold their company for over $100 million to TD called Layer 6. Wow. Um, and yeah, yeah. That is awesome. a great, that is awesome. That's a great story. Yeah. It is a great story. I, I love it. But the part to me that's actually meaningful and important is not that they sold a the company that we made money, everybody's happy. That's all great. The part that's important is that now Tommy and Jordan are running, I think, a $300 million family called Radical Ventures in Toronto, which is trying really oh, yes. hard. Yes, it's fairly new, right? It's a fairly new yeah, fund. fairly new, a big fund. They also, the two of them were catalytic in creating the Vector Institute. And so like, you know, that's all them. That's what they did. That's amazing. 
but I, you know, you're asking me about what makes people feel good. I'm like, wow, that's kind of cool. That little butterfly's wing of like, hey, you two should meet turns into this amazing thing. That's pretty satisfying for me, I guess. Well, um, you're, you're obviously doing a ton of things right in terms of angel investing. In, in 2015, you're recognized as Canada's quote unquote angel investor of the year. How, how does one become the angel investor of the year? Oh, the same way Joe Dart becomes the best bass player in the world. <laughs> Open vote. I'm no, I'm no, no Literally, like, it just like, I had nothing to do. It wasn't like a nomination. It wasn't like a, okay. you know, go be that. I just, you know, one day they had like an open online thing and people voted, I guess, which was pretty gratifying. And then my name came up, I guess. Um, and that was really nice, I suppose. It was a nice thing. Uh, congratulations. So you mentioned the customer centricity. So the, the putting merchants first at Shopify is one key KPI as being one of the genius things that the company does. What are some of the other philosophies and or KPIs that are interesting or intriguing at Shopify? Oh, that's a very big open-ended question. I mean, I should say that like one thing that Shopify does is humble me because these amazing founders, you know, Toby, Harley, amazing leaders, they, they have built something just, I don't think people fully appreciate how big, how massive, how world-changing it's going to be and how important it is for, for Canada. And so, you know, one of the things that I think they tell you when you come here is like, you know, it takes about a year to understand and have real context. So I'm not even at a full year, so I'm hesitant to answer your question. <laughs> but but I, I don't think it's a KPI question that is really, and I kind of told you like, you know, how do we help merchants make more money? How, you know, we are merchant-centric Custom, you know, merchant focused, merchant obsessed kind of company. The word that resonates for me for Shopify that is just in so many different ways, it is thoughtful. It is a thoughtful place where they value thinking. And that is so rare today. You know, how, how can I exemplify it? They, the, the company offsites are not just like metrics and meetings and stuff like that. It's, you know, targets and goals. In fact, that's barely that. It's, it's actually like almost like internal TED Talks to some extent about ideas and topics that aren't just about, you know, the moment at hand. And uh, I think it's thoughtful in like the, you talked about recruiting. It's just super thoughtful about everything. Thoughtful in the way that the, the offices are designed so that people have places to meet and that people can have who have different work styles can can meet thoughtful in um, making people think. You know, Toby has Toby's bookshelves. In every office, there's like a big bookshelf where you can go grab copies of books that are interesting. And the books aren't like, you know, how to understand online e-commerce retail and like, you know, making money 101. <laughs> no, the books are like about like the history of the container ship or like stoicism or, you know, photography. Um, because I, that that thoughtfulness infuses this business over like you should be broad and think about the world because if you're thinking and you're thoughtful in your conversations and everything you do, that's going to make for an amazing product because that is the core. Shopify is a product company. It builds amazing products that are thoughtful, that really understand the pain and the problem and like that every pixel, every word, everything that's done is there for a reason to make a merchant's life better. And that's hard. And that's really hard to build that kind of pace and, and still be able to grow as quickly as Shopify has. So as VP of Partnerships and Corporate Development, how does this all play into your role there? Start from first principles. I think it's probably the best way that comes into play in terms of what mission I'm trying to achieve with the team that we're building is um, just because someone else does it in one way, or there's a pattern in an industry of like, oh, every company does it this way, therefore we should. That is not the kind of thinking that is um, um, rewarded or recognized as like, it's like actually start from first principles. What would be good for a merchant? You know, I mean, and the type of thinking I'm describing, I, I, actually, I was in a conversation about a potential thing we could do. And 
the question I asked was just a very simple one. I, I asked, I said, if we were to tell our merchants that we were spending this much money on this thing, would those merchants say, this is great, that's the first most important problem I have for you to solve for me, or would they be confused? And that, that asking a question, because I didn't know the answer, asking a question was a really thoughtful way to open up conversation and get people to think about what we were doing. And so, yeah, I think that's how that comes into what we're trying to do. And this is sort of related to a topic that you've spoken about before, which is called the border is an imaginary thing, right? This, this way of thinking that sometimes people are locked in to a certain type of mindset. Um, can you just speak a little bit more about, about that? I think I said that um, it was an impromptu talk. I was doing like a tech TO and I was like, I had a talk and then I asked the crowd if they wanted to like instead do something impromptu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, that I thought was actually the coolest part of that whole talk. Um, not that I'm discounting any of the material because I thought the topic was awesome, but how you teed it all up was super entertaining. I mean, that's a great engagement strategy for any audience. <laughs> <laughs> so highly recommend that people uh, seek that out, but but go ahead. Yeah. So the borders imaginary line. I mean, I actually don't think that talk is relevant really in Toronto at all anymore. Um because I think the problem has been dealt with. The problem that I was trying to talk about was that I would see as a startup or as an angel investor, like a lot of companies that were just like, hey, I want to do this version of what that company is in the States here. And mm -hmm. I'd be like, what? That, that's your vision? You're just going to copy that? And that's okay. Actually, there's nothing wrong with that in some cases. But what I wanted to try and encourage people, because that was the mindset that David Ossip taught me at Workbrain, and this is certainly what we tried to do at Ripple, where our first customers were all in Silicon Valley, and we ended up opening an office there, was to recognize, like, you know, Toronto's an hour away from New York, Chicago, Boston. It's not far. And I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but it actually is an imaginary line. Like, <laughs> you know, nature does not know the difference between Canada and the United States. It's just, it's just an imaginary line that we put up. And so what I was trying to encourage people to think about is that like many of the things that you imagine are barriers for you to be able to do business in states or do, do them globally. These are just constructs that you create. And if you can step back sometimes to see those constructs and how they limit you, how they create literal borders in your head of what you can and cannot do, if you can sort of understand them, sort of like see the matrix, you can then um, operate around them. And, and the call there was to say, don't just build a company selling here. Like you should be thinking about the fact that you have the biggest market in the world, not very far from you, and you should sell to them and you should figure out how to sell to them and figure out the right approach and figure out the right way to get those customers. And you shouldn't be limited by this idea that I'll go in Toronto and therefore I can't sell there. Um, and, you know, happy denouement has nothing to do with me, but like, it's pretty clear that, you know, the companies that are here now have this incredible world beating attitude all over the place. Yeah. And Shopify is one of them, obviously. Uh, you've also talked about the idea of creating 10 Shopify's in this country. I think that was in another talk that you gave. What is this talk all about? So it's funny how memes happen. Like I do remember saying that a couple times in talks and then I like was gobsmacked because I saw, you know, Navdeep Baines, our, our, our um, minister of innovation, I guess, saying the same thing. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's really awesome. So, you know, no credit, but I'm glad people converged on the same idea. Well, what's the idea? The idea was um, that governments want to help, I think, and they want to spend a lot of time and money, certainly at the time on like startup rate stage stuff. And my observation, not unique, others have the same one, was like, actually, it's not just about startups, it's like scale-ups. Like, how do you get these businesses to be big? And even more important, what I was trying to express was that, and I mean, look, I just talked about how great CDL was and I'm part of it, but at the end of the day, um, you know, entrepreneurship and more importantly, all of the talent pool that has to get created as giant companies scale, people who know how to do DevOps, people who know how to do marketing, go to market, 
sales, tech support, like the context and experience that an entire population builds is not really built through university programs or accelerator programs or like, you know, courses. It's built by doing and more importantly, doing in the context of actual success. And so if we wanted to build an if we want to build an ecosystem where like where, you know, you can go out and say, like, look, I need someone who's amazing at doing like pick my example, DevOps. You know, in, in, in San Francisco, there are just like dozens and dozens and hundreds of people because there's hundreds of companies, some really scale ones who've been through, like, what does it take to scale to, to supersize? And so the argument is, if you want the country and you want to improve the stock of capital, human capital, that can therefore continuously build an ecosystem, not just startups that get snapped up and bought, including the ones I do, but actual Shopify scale companies that like bend the curve of the economy, bend the curve of like um, GDP. You probably need to have like 10 more companies that are growing that are like, you know, 10 plus multi-billion dollar businesses, public companies. And also importantly, I think this is sometimes lost. Like it's not just enough to be a big company. You have to be, I think the thing that people miss or like that, that really attracts me to Shopify is that Shopify is a platform company, meaning other people build their businesses on top of Shopify. So it's not like if you look at the biggest companies in the world, they're platform businesses. They're businesses that other people build upon. And so that was what I said that for, like build the human capital, build the wealth. And there's all sorts of wonderful spinoff effects. You know, people leave Shopify with capital, with experience, because they've been part of this experience and they go start other companies. We're starting to see that already, right? There's like VC funds uh, created. I think Adam McNamara has a VC fund. Um, lots of ex-Shopify people have started companies. And so if you could just make that happen 10x, I think you, you'd start seeing like actual and legitimate and serious macroeconomic change in the country in terms of like what people think the country's about, what do we think we're good at, um, and then the human capital capacity for like that accelerating, that flywheel of like, oh, there's another good idea, it's gotten product market fit, and now it's at the point where like it can contract you know, $100 million in capital. The constraint then is like, can you scale up and find 500 people who actually can do that really quickly? That's hard right now, still in Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, Vancouver. And so by having 10 companies the size of Shopify and with the experience and population of people who've done it, you know, you'd have tens of thousands of people who had scaled. And that starts the ecosystem. And I think that's the thing that I think I see in the Valley and it's sort of hidden. It's hard to understand. I remember taking a walk through Uber with a friend of mine, Canadian actually, who this very senior biz dev person there. And he's like, hey, here's my team. And so-and-so is at uh, Twitter. And so-and-so is at Pinterest. And so-and-so is at Facebook. And he kind of looked at me. He said, yeah, my team only knows how to build multi-billion dollar companies. Hmm. And that's what I mean by 10 Shopify. Who do you think has the potential uh, in terms of Canadian tech companies that are scaling right now to have the notoriety globally that Shopify does? Who are some names that come to mind? You know, the truth is, I don't know. Like, the nice thing is that, like, I, I've actually stepped back from angel investing for a little while now because uh, I've got a new job and other stuff to do. But there are just so many great companies. And, and most important is, like, I don't even know. I mean, the cool thing is, I'm sure the next Shopify is already out there. It's just no one knows about it yet. And again, like, I think this is the part, like, everyone should remember that, like, it was hard for Toby to raise money. No one, people did not believe. It wasn't like everyone was like, oh, there's this thing in Ottawa. I mean, eventually it got there. But, like, it wasn't obvious at all right yeah and, and he was at it uh, for a I very long time he was at it for a very long time he had a yeah. he had a, a really hard time I, I remember uh doing some research on the company that he was talking about going down to just try and get a real world mba on what it was like to raise money like he had no idea when when i think it's scott lake i think that's his name when he left he was supposed to be that guy toby had a very difficult time um and it took it took a while i think before bessemer yeah. came on board yeah. right 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so like the reason I'm not answering your question is because like, I don't know, like I, I have no idea. Hmm. Well, either do I. <laughs> that makes two of us. When you think about the next chapter for you beyond Shopify, um, what do you think that will be? Uh, I'm not thinking about the next chapter. I mean, I'm, I'm, I tweeted this out the other day, but it, 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 and it's true. It's like, I've never worked at a better place, including the companies that I've started when I was CEO. Uh, I'm having a ton of fun here. Like part of the reason why, you know, it was exciting for far and I sell helpful to Shopify was that, you know, we really wanted to be part of helping not just build a company and do our jobs, but actually build something that would be like foundational for the country. And this thing is that, and it's just so rare to get a chance to work in such a world-class global internet business with such good people, <laughs> like really good people. I mean, I, I mentioned that earlier, you asked about words about Shopify. There's thoughtful, and I would actually say good people, like truly good people, nice. And so I don't, I'm really not thinking about that. I'm, I'm thinking actually, how can I be here for a very long time? Uh, because I think this is going to be like a generational business. Like this, this is, this is going to be a very big hundred year company. It's going to stay around for a while. And so I'm at the place in my life where that's an exciting thing to be part of. Well, that's huge praise for Toby and the team. Well, Dan, amazing to have you on. Congratulations on all of the success so far. I guess in the last couple of minutes, where can people find you if they want to connect with you on social? Oh, Twitter. Just D-D-E-B-O-W, D-D-E-B-O on Twitter. And, you know, you can email me. Uh, I don't mind that. I'm uh, Debo at Shopify. Uh, people can get in touch with me. I'm pretty accessible. Uh, I, you know, I, I try to make time for everybody. I can't always make time anymore. Unfortunately, it's one of the things that bums me out. I just don't have the ability to spend time with everybody who wants to spend some time. Um, but I try. I'll try and be helpful. Um, well, this was super helpful for, for me and for all the listeners. So, so thank you so much. Um, Maybe the next chapter for you, by the way, is uh, the sit-in for Wolfpack. If they need a bass player, <laughs> no, no, I mean, no, no. You, you have the bass, right? You, you, you have the sound. You just gotta insert yourself. No, I do not have the sound. That's the thing. That, so I didn't talk to you about this, but like the Wolfpack bass has no dials, no controls, one pickup. What it yeah. really focuses on is that the tone is all on the fingers, and I don't have Joe Dart's fingers. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, yeah, that would be fun. That would be a dream. But. I, I don't think I'd ever have, I don't, I wouldn't have the guts to do that, to be honest with you. Everyone's going to be watching Joe Dart bass videos after this. Okay. Well, thank you so much, man. No problem. Pleasure. E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase. Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. If you like E2, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you consume your audio. Leave us a review. Even become an exclusive supporter of the show. Visit glow.fm slash E2 to do so. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. 
Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast.